UX Podcast Episode 273. You're listening to UX Podcast, coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. Helping the UX community explore ideas and share knowledge since 2011. We are your hosts, James Royal Lawson and Pat Axbom. We have listeners in 200 countries and territories in the world from Australia to Iran. And I am super excited about today's interview. Uh, this is a person I've admired and followed for many years, uh, Indy Young. She's an independent qualitative data scientist, problem space researcher, coach, empathy and listening expert, speaker, and the list could, of course, go on and on. She's also been in this space for decades, and I first came across her at a conference in Boston in 2002, where she was introducing her brilliant signature concept of mental models. I met Indy for the first time back in 2012 at UXLX in Portugal, and I took part in her mental model workshop at that conference. So we're spreading out our indie moments quite evenly, Bear. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, this year, Indy gave a talk at uh, From Business to Buttons. Now, I'd, I'd normally say here in Stockholm, but it was, like all conferences this spring, held um, online. So we didn't get, a ch- did chance, didn't get a chance to meet her in person, but we have caught up with her now um, afterwards a little bit afterwards, and we're going to talk around her presentation, which was People, Purpose, Patterns, and Problem Space. So in, the, in your talk, you run through the history of, of software development uh, all the way to the present, and you illustrate sort of how we have moved from building solutions for professions uh, like spreadsheets or and helping people get to the moon, and towards building them for everyone. And along the way, we've realized the value of user-friendly and user-centered. And to fully cater to human needs, however, you're stressing that we still have a ways to go because we're still looking through the lens of the solution. Can you expand on what you mean with the lens of the solution? Absolutely. So, um, usually, when you join a company, you are... Uh, or when you're a, a consultant and you're, you know, doing a project for a client, you're very interested in what that client is producing, that what that solution is that they're producing, whether it's a product or a service or something that happens in one minute or over the course of several years. Um, it's a thing that they do and that they're trying to get better and that they're trying to grow or grow the market for or something. Um, that seems to be the capitalist way to just keep growing, growing, growing. Um, and so when you are that employee, that tends to be the way that you look at the work you do. So all of our agile, all of our jobs to be done, all of our uh, even, you know, design 101 and um, uh, uh, sorry, design thinking and um, all of those little methods while they say we're going to be human centric, they start with the idea of the human using that solution or the human in the position to maybe consider buying that solution. Um, so there's a, there's a usage or a buying uh, sort of a lens on it. Um, 
rarely, rarely do people actually spend time getting out. They do it. Um, in design thinking, there's this part where you're trying to get out there and jobs to be done. They try to do it too. I think in the hands of somebody very good at it, they will do it well, as well as I do. Uh, but <laughs> very rarely do people try to figure out what's going through somebody's mind as they're trying to accomplish their purpose. Hmm. So if you're trying to support somebody and you're only looking at it through the lens of your solution, through the lens of like, well, how do we support them? You're only seeing a part of what that person's trying to get done, only a part of their purpose, only a little subsection of their thinking, and you don't see the whole. Um, not only does that mean you're running around blind, but it also means you're missing a lot of opportunities. You're missing a lot of breadth there that you could grow into. Um, or that you could start supporting more strongly. Um, <clears throat> so this is all tied together with my thinking styles. Um, that the, Those are just archetypes that are demographics free, um, trying to make people more aware of the fact that we are generally trying to solve for just one thinking style. Even the personas that people make are very often one thinking style with a different demographic layer on them. Mm. <laughs> so they're just designing for one person. They're designing for that average user. And I'm saying that right now we're at an inflection point about this average user. We need to stop designing for the average because we are harming people who are not average. This happened in the past when we decided to start accommodating people uh, in the built environment with uh, curb cuts and mm -hmm. bathroom stalls and sinks and things, but also accommodate them like in the classroom with different ways of taking tests and different uh, possibilities just to fully recognize people as human. This also happened earlier than that in the mechanical area where we were building things like fighter jets and cars uh for an average size human yeah and it wasn't working that's why we got adjustable seats that's why we got uh those kinds of um ways of customizing something to you um and and so that's going to be where i stop this little answer because there's a lot of little <laughs> rabbit holes in there <laughs> there were a lot of uh phrases there like thinking styles and average user uh, an average user is really interesting because uh, you you talk about it alongside this this uh, concept of edge case, and I think that we've moved uh, in the design industry or in the di digital industry uh, overall. We've moved away from thinking of edge cases as something that is uh, that like being about the commonality of the error to being the action of the user. So we're not talking about the, how the system behaves anymore. We're talking about how humans behave, and how humans behave becomes an edge case which is a yeah, dangerous thing a very dangerous <laughs> thing that's a very bad misconception um, an edge case is specifically for processes um, and like a process normally works this way but in this particular context it doesn't happen all that often in this area uh, here's this edge case right and so as software engineers we're trying to like not only solve the process as it normally happens, but solve all the different variations 
as well. And then we feel very proud of ourselves for how many variations we solve for. That did creep into this idea of user experience and the user. And I think it crept in there because of the way that as uh, the, the way that marketing and capitalism thinks of their market. So when you are thinking of yourself as an organization that has you know, a, a limited number of resources and a limited amount of money to spend on growth, um, then you're going to pick and choose what to do. And what you do is you end up looking at like, well, who is our market, quote unquote, often defined by demographics, which cause a lot of assumptions and a lot of harm. Um, but it's defined often by demographics. And there's this little sort of bell curve to it. And they say, let's focus on that center of the bell curve. That's going to get us the greatest area, the greatest number of people. And those other edges of the bell curve, we'll call them the people that are the edge cases. Mm. I think that's how it happened. Um, super dangerous, I agree. I was just, just reflecting on that. So what we did, we basically were going through an industrial revolution and, and like optimizing processes and, and looking at edge cases that were you know, not following our nice process or streamlined factory yeah. or whatever. And we were trying to kind of eliminate these things that were not efficient and not kind of going to keep us on track to our process. And then somehow, suddenly we've we've ended up applying that to how we produce things to sell right. and and we're no longer kind of optimizing a process or a production thing we're actually you know thinking it's all too complicated this like human variation thing and edge cases <laughs> that's interesting because i did take a digital uh viewpoint on that so i was looking at it through the lens of digital um and what you just brought up is the lens of the physical um, like that factory floor and the efficiency of productivity um, on the factory line or what have you. Um, and so, yeah, that's a, definitely another way of looking at it. And again, um, let's tie that to something more modern. Um, let's talk about Amazon and Amazon warehouses. Mm. Uh, I'm assuming that you've got them there too. Um, we have this literally mushrooming of warehouses anywhere you drive anywhere near a metropolitan area there are big warehouses with lots of those little truck doors for trucks to back up to um uh growing they they pop up overnight like mushrooms um and then they the company hires people and i know somebody who works at one of these he was a um lifeguard at the pool that i swim at um for many many years amazing guy um, and he's like, hey, I can, I can earn a few dollars more there. So I'm going to go try it. And I saw him, like, I don't know, seven, eight weeks later or something. He looked like a scarecrow. He had lost about 25, I can't remember exactly what he said, 25 or 30 pounds. Um, his, like, you could see the bones in his arm. I'm like, John, what happened? <laughs> he's all like, well, I walk about 10 miles a day. And um, I get a 30-minute break for lunch and two 10-minute breaks, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And um, 
and you have to like follow this algorithm. So there's a lot of um, articles that I could, we could reference in the show notes or something uh, that people are writing these days about the way that the algorithms are now trying to drive people to be more productive. So there we've, we're, we're, we're joining that digital right. lens yeah, with yeah. the physical lens and the physical yeah. lens is also the human. And the humans are being driven to go faster and faster. And as soon as they don't meet some of those um, numbers that the algorithm is like ratcheting up, mm. then they get fired. So if you're a woman mm. and you have a heavy period and you have to go to the bathroom more often, mm. you get fired. Yeah, because you're an edge case and it, the algorithm doesn't take that into an account. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And you're and effectively it, not as productive. Yeah. And if you're John mm. and you're only mm. eating like a one mm. hard-boiled egg at lunch, <laughs> you're losing weight like hell. Mm. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 a very dangerous situation, um, because somewhere somebody made the decision that this was a smart thing to do to have an algorithm run humans. Now, maybe eventually those humans are going back uh, to normal human activities and there's only going to be robots in the warehouse. Um, and they're still going to have physical constraints. Um, so this idea, it's all creeping back to this idea of like, oh, in capitalism, always, always we're growing, always, always growing. Mm. We're never thinking about sustainable. We're never thinking about reaching a level where it is a good balance. We're never thinking about the ecosystem. We're never thinking about living this way. So that, that's, I think, where, where you also introduce this concept of thinking styles, uh, because yeah. that's where you bring in the, the, how humans are, and humans aren't always thinking along numbers, uh, the, how many of these things can I accomplish in a day? Because humans thinks, think in other ways. They think about sustainability. Yeah. And they th do think about quick and efficient sometimes, but they also think about tradition and what ancestor ancestors did. Uh, walk us through what, how thinking styles can help us get out of this mess that we've built. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> it's tied with the average user message, yeah. too. Um, I th uh, so, yeah, we've built a mess for sure. <laughs> oh, mm. my God. How many people have been elected in countries because of disinformation or uh, gaming the algorithm for advertising on Facebook, right? Um, so it's a mess. Uh, so, yeah, thinking styles. I think that thinking styles alone are not the solution. I think the, the biggest thing that we have to do is catch the attention of the people who are making these bad decisions and show them how harmful they are. Hmm. So one of the things that I have done in this past year is develop a graph. This graph is tied to the opportunity map. But imagine that you are a product owner, okay? And you're responsible for like this section of what normally people think of through the solution lens as the product. But if, if we can get a hold of that product owner who's open-minded and really does want to do a good job for a person, a human, if we can switch their attention to the person's purpose and say, I'm responsible for helping this person with this section of their purpose, I have it graphed out in that opportunity map based on listening sessions, based on deep data, um, 
patterns, uh, understanding of how well we are supporting thinking style A, thinking style B, and thinking style C. Um, I have an example of this. Uh, this was from an uh, opportunity map that was done for a group uh, in the U.S. government who is responsible for helping employers adhere to the Americans with Disabilities Act in terms of hiring and employing Americans with disabilities. Um, probably similar uh, rules in, in a lot of different countries. Um, and this little group was um, originally just creating pamphlets, you know, like how to hire somebody with disabilities. Um, and then they started doing some trainings. Um, and they were really initially very focused on veterans. Um, and so what, they, what we did was an understanding of what people who are responsible for hiring and, and, uh, and addressing the needs of their employees what has been their experience over the past, you know, few months or years that's really memorable where they were doing this for somebody with a disability or a disability came up? We took all of that data, made a mental model diagram. It looks like a city skyline with a bunch of towers in it. And the towers are kind of organized into city blocks. And those city blocks can kind of come together into neighborhoods. Mm just like a city it, gr it grows from the bottom up it's not like oh this is going to be this neighborhood and we'll put these things in it that's called curating and that's how we get our mm -hmm. bias into our data <laughs> so um so this city skyline of the people who are hiring and sustaining people in their organizations specifically about do you, what they was going through their mind with respect to people uh, who had a disability um it was ever all their thinking, all their inner thinking. That includes motivations. That includes procrastination. That includes wondering and worrying and feeling frustrated and all these other emotions that cause more inner thinking. And it also includes guiding principles, which are kind of their philosophies. And so these guiding principles are what help us see whether there are different philosophic approaches to this job, this purpose right, of, um, in jobs to be done, they call it the core functional job. I call it a purpose because uh, as a person, I don't, I don't refer to what I'm trying to do as a core functional job. <laughs> <laughs> what? Um, oh, it's only you, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it, with respect to understanding a thinking style, do people have different philosophic approaches to their purpose? And in that data, there's a certain way that we can look at it and understand whether there are differences. Um, and in that particular set, there were two. There was one thinking style that was the empathic, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking ahead, I'm, I'm looking out for people before they even come to me, and I'm really aware of these things, and I'm trying to stay on top of it. Um, and then the other one was more like, I've got a lot to handle here. And so, yes, as soon as you come to me, I'm going to take care of you, but it's not going to be me reaching out to you. Okay. It's not going to be like the empathic person was like, oh, you know what? This person um, that we just hired is deaf. And I just realized the other day as I walked in that our alarm systems are all audio. And we need some sort of visual alarm system to help yeah. him out. 
I mean, although everybody else running around with their <laughs> arms in the air might help too. Mm. However, that was the kind of proactive thing that they're thinking, whereas the more reactive thinking style was like, oh, you know, this woman whose eyesight has been going worse and worse, she came to me and said, hey, I need to get like a screen magnifier. Um, and so that was the first step. And then she says, you know, I, my doctor says I think that I could have this kind of surgery. Um, would you be willing to let me try that and have some time off, blah, blah, blah. So, so that's kind of the difference between those two. And when we went through and we aligned all those trainings and all the materials that that group had produced to the towers in the city skyline in the blocks in the various neighborhoods in that particular block um that uh well actually across all of them what we did see was that all the materials were aimed at the empathic problem solver none of them were aimed at the i'm gonna react uh it's sort of in the same manner, but it's a very different approach philosophically. Um, I could talk to you about thinking styles around um, cooking dinner mm. uh, as a creative home chef, which you might be able to wrap your head around a little bit better. But I'll stop it here because I said a lot. <laughs> See where we should go. <laughs> Just wonder how, when you've got the um, um, the well, the thinking patterns, how do you stop? yourself ending up with just stereotypes with a different name right this comes from what people say about themselves and so what i'm doing is i am actually looking for patterns philosophic patterns of people's own way of thinking in their own words so i have a very specific way that i summarize the various concepts at depth the inner thinking the guiding principles and the emotional reactions um, i have a specific way of doing that so that their voice remains present and what we do is we let that come together again we're not curating okay we do it when we describe people we use those phrases that are inner thinking um, guiding principles, sometimes emotional reactions. If emotional reactions, there's really, um, like in the airline thinking style, there was a, a, one of the thinking styles is very emotionally driven. Um, it doesn't always happen with respect to thinking styles. But when we write those up, the description is about four, five, six sentences. There is no picture. There's no demographics. There's no favorite band. There's no anything else. It's just those sentences in respect to their purpose. Mm. And that then is a very different way of looking at how people get their purpose done and a very eye-opening way of looking at how we're only supporting one of those thinking styles or only halfway supporting one of them because we've only been thinking of it from the average user kind of point of view, full of assumptions um, and uh, all of that. The, the other thing about the descriptions is that the, everything of the description, I'll give it a, a title, um, like Empathic Problem Solver. Uh, the title has to be something someone be, would be proud to use to describe themselves. Mm. So there was an, in the airline case uh, that I did, um, these were about 
people trying to get from point A to point B. That was their purpose. Um, we studied actually a couple of different purposes, like trying to get to the gate on time. <laughs> um, and it was interesting because we ended up with the same thinking styles across all of them. That was a surprise. That doesn't always happen. Typically, there will be different thinking styles and different purposes. Um, the, the interesting thing, though, is that um, that emotional one, that emotional one, the team wanted to call the grumbler. Oh, of course. And I'm, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I'm like, you know, no one would describe themselves as a grumbler. You cannot use that phrase. Mm. Let's go back and see what phrase they use to describe themselves. And the word was the frustrated. Frustrated. Oh. Right, because yeah. it's from their perspective. And the grumbler would be actually yeah. from the organization's perspective. Exactly. Yeah. It's a different yeah. lens. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And so then if you can put yourself into that mm. frustrated mindset, you're like, oh, my God. I was a frustrated on that particular leg of that particular trip. Mm. I can be this person. Yeah. Right. Because thinking styles are contextual. They're not a personality. They're not a horoscope. Um, and oftentimes you will get people having fun with personas and turning them into horoscopes. That's where like the favorite band, mm. you know, and this sort of thing comes. It's like... I've seen it again and again. It's like there's this one example I use in my course where there are three thinking styles, and it's about a, a startup. It's for a startup who um, wanted to make a product, a solution that helps people feel safe walking around in the city, getting some exercise or getting to a place or walking the dog safely. And they had three different thinking styles. All of the thinking styles were white collar workers. <laughs> um, and all of the thinking style, I mean, they had three different personas. I should be careful with my words here. Mm. All of the personas were white collar workers. Mm. The personas had basically the same background education. The personas were basically the same age. Um, they were just different genders. And um, they were all the same thinking style. Mm. And they were all written from the lens of the solution. It's like, oh, I'm right. going to use this yeah. solution to blah, 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 right? Yeah. 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 So that's even so, how we write user stories for our backlogs. It's Yeah. So for user stories, I think once you're in the solution space, hmm. you're okay talking about the solution. That's okay, yeah. fine. Mm -hmm. when you're, yeah, when mm -hmm. you're doing evaluative work, when mm -hmm. you're doing generative work, mm -hmm. you're in the solution mm -hmm. space. You are generating ideas. Ideas are solutions. You're in the solution space. But when we're trying to understand people, let's just gather an understanding of somebody trying to accomplish their purpose. Then you're in the opportunity space or what I call the problem space. Um, ethics calls it the futures research. Um, that's us trying to understand people as people, trying to get their purpose done. Mm. And what I want is in the end, after we get, you know, after we get this data into our, our, our opportunity backlog, so it's driven not by technology, it's not driven by big data correlation guesses about assumptions for demographics, but it's driven by understanding what's going through people's heads and their different philosophies. Yeah. Um, then we can go into our solutions much better prepared. We can narrow down what we're going to work on. Like, okay, we're only going to work on this thinking style for right now. We know there's this other thinking style, but we're making the decision to work on this one. And we feel confident about it. And we're going to really nail this one, not try to, like, make a solution that works for everybody. And then we're going to come back and make another solution, another front end, another experience for this 
other thinking style. Yeah. And the other thing that we can do then is also layer on discrimination lenses and physiology lenses. Exactly. Right. And this is, this is where, so it gets really complex, mm -hmm. <laughs> but this is where we start really opening our eyes, especially back in when we're framing our research studies in the opportunity space, who are we going to hear from? And how can we like come to our stakeholders and say, here's, here's the org's goal, right? Here's the knowledge we need to accomplish that goal. We have some of that knowledge, but we're missing some of the knowledge. Is it a big risk to not know that stuff? And the stakeholders can go like, God, no, you know, if we, if we mess it up, then it's going to be, yeah, pretty uh, expensive. So yeah, that's a big risk. So let's go make that knowledge. So um, what tool do we use to make that knowledge? And that's the question that usually doesn't get asked. Usually in the orgs, what happens is somebody will say, hey, I used this tool in my other job and it worked pretty well, yeah. so let's use this tool to make knowledge, even though it isn't the right tool for that kind of knowledge. Exactly. Um, this, I was just talking to somebody yesterday. Yeah, the product manager came in from this other, oh, jobs to be done worked really well there, so let's do jobs to be done um, because uh, we realized that we're a startup and we made a solution without actually knowing what people's purposes are and it isn't working. So we're now backtracking and trying to understand what people's purposes are and what their thinking is and see like, where is it that we can double down because we're only a startup with so many resources. So let's double down on this thinking style in this, you know, block in this neighborhood and focus there. I'm going to throw we... something at you now, uh, okay, yeah. which we don't have time for. So James is going to hate me now. <laughs> <laughs> because this is something I've been thinking about a lot, and I think that yeah. you may also have been thinking about it because it has to do with uh, what you also talk about as orality, this back and forth exchange between two people. And this is the, in the research phase. This is how you go into depth with understanding people. And besides design, I do uh, do some coaching with clients. And when I do that, what happens is that in the first session, we set up a goal which could the person could be defining as their purpose. This is what I want to achieve. And by the third or fourth session, three week intervals, they will start to reconsider. That's not really what I wanted. I've been thinking about this so much now, I realized that is really not my purpose. That is really not what I want to achieve. I, I'm someone different. How can we get to that type of depth and make sure that we actually do uh, think about all the possibilities of who a person wants to become rather than what they're saying in the one hour session or the one hour interview. Right. Um, so the, the purpose is something that they did. And I don't study what people want to achieve. It's something they did. Um, so for example, uh, and it takes framing the purpose uh, very uh, carefully. So, for example, this is a complex example. There was a, uh, a gaming company that wanted to make games that helped people, uh, especially young women, develop self-confidence. I don't know why they wanted to s specify gender or age, because I'm not a demographics person. So let's say we want to develop a game that helps people develop self-confidence. So what knowledge do we need? When... So that's the org's goal, right? One of the pieces of knowledge that we need is like, well, how, how do people develop self-confidence? 
so that we can teach it. Now, there are, there's a lot of existing research about that, and we could just use that. Um, but there's also sort of this missing component in it of what actually, like, what were the, how did people force themselves through the barriers? Um, so what, uh, to, to gain self-confidence, right? We want those stories to understand exactly how they did it. Um, and so what we did was we decided the purpose needed to be something that somebody accomplished that required a lot of self-confidence. And what we decided on was changing my personal identity. Okay. So from a game mm. to the purpose of I'm, I changed my personal identity. It's not, I'm going to change my personal identity because you haven't done any thinking right. about it, or if you've done yeah. a little bit of thinking about it, right? But you haven't done all of it. And the part that we need is how you, how you work through those mm. setbacks. Because it's hard. Mm. So when we're recruiting for this, I have a very specific way of recruiting. When we're recruiting for this, we have to make sure that people have done enough thinking about it. It was a struggle. It took months. Um, right. And I need yeah. to understand that they can also tell me about mm. it. Um, there sometimes, so I'll do a spoken screener. I call it an intro oh. session with mm. the people, with a candidate. Mm. Um, who's not a participant, they're just a candidate. And I say, it's an info session, and um, we're gonna, I'm going to ask you some questions, you're going to ask me some questions, we're going to like, see if yeah. we're comfortable with this and want to go forward, right? Um, and part of what I'm doing in that is sussing out whether they, as I'm trying to develop a trust or rapport with them, I'm doing that in that session, and I'm trying to figure out if they'll take that um, and accept it and give me some trust, because trust is important yeah. and we're going to do it with a tiny little question that is easy for them uh, to answer in a short period of time. But the other thing I'm looking for is can they, like your example, can they express what actually went through their mind? Mm -hmm. Do they know what went through their mind? Yeah, I love this. Right, yeah. yeah. So, of course, with Per's yeah. example, he's trying to create self-awareness mm -hmm. through coaching, whereas what you and you're trying to do is trying to surface yeah. self-awareness mm. from a, a journey that's already been traveled. Yep. You're starting yeah. new journeys, Per. Exactly. Yep. Yep. That's yeah, a really exactly. good way of explaining it. Thank you. <laughs> 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 I mean, to sum things up, I mean, there's, there's so much opportunity out there to do way, way better than we're doing today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think to sum things up, we need to develop relationships with our product owners, with our stakeholders, so that they trust us, so that they understand what it's like to have a trust relationship, to speak at depth to one another, rather than to speak at surface to one another. Mm. And mm. once we develop those relationships, that I think is the point at which they will start to recognize that we're we have some, as researchers, expertise in selecting which research tool to use for a particular knowledge that we need to create um, and let us help design the studies rather than, no, let's just go use jobs to be done, you know, or whatever tool, right? Mm. Um, I, so it's, it's up to us to develop those relationships because without that, they're going to continue to have the power and they're going to continue to run around not knowing. They have no idea that they're doing it wrong. The other half of it, I think, is if we can start to show them the harms that we're doing very specifically 
to a thinking style in a particular part of what we're creating as a solution for them um, with respect to, of course, their uh, purpose, a tower in their purpose. Um, so that's the other half of it, relationships and starting to show them what the harms are and maybe getting attention. I love it. It's, um, there's so much more to. I'm looking forward to listening back to this. So yeah, me as well. In even more. <laughs> Thank you so much, Emily. This was really, really valuable. It was really good fun. Thank you. Yay! So, core values, guiding principles, purpose. I, I do. I do like all this that um, uh, Indy talks about because it ties in. I feel with behavioral economics and and the move that we've had inside economics away from seeing people as as totally or purely rational actors in an economic system humans mm. humans are irrational or, or rather we we have core values we have principles we have purpose and and that sometimes makes our decisions look different to what we might have expected so Indy in her talk, she, she uh, says, ugh, people are complicated, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, which is true. But uh, So I love the, the reframing so that we look at it, yeah. look at all this from a purpose angle rather than a, a process, mm. a product, an organization, a mm. need, or, or even a task. It, it's so mm. much more human. Yeah. And it's interesting about that word irrational. I, th I think about it a lot because we all agree that people are irrational. That, that's only because people are really unpredictable. But when, when Indy goes through the thinking styles uh, in her talk, I really like that. So consider a person buying something, a can of soup or something. Uh, some people are, have the thinking style of quick and efficient, so it's, it's, they pick the first one they see. And some think sustainability, and they actually want to pay more because they think in a sustainable manner. And that could, from another point of view, another person would look at that, well, that's really stupid. You're buying the more expensive product. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at long-term, so that's another thinking style. Yeah. So I love that if you're reframing it, you're not trying to necessarily understand a person and their behavior, just looking at it and seeing what is happening and understanding that. Hmm. Yeah. Another thing that really struck me, and I wanted to bring this up with anybody, we were running out of time, kind of, but I think <laughs> this is a great example of... of uh, uh, how how you look at her her quote, which I love: "All humans are fully human, with many ways of being in the world." And, and something that I come across quite often is this problem we have that in accessibility that we categorize people, and we think of the people with accessibility issues, uh, and we, we categorize those into those with visual impairments and blind people. Uh, and what I've come to recognize is that, of course, a person with visual impairment and a person with with perfect vision could have the exact exact same purpose and needs. Uh, that could be separate from a third person who is also visually impaired. But most people jump to the conclusion that all visually impaired people have the same type of needs, which is a problem. So in that sense, the way that uh, Indy is proposing that we work actually helps that in that we disregard the, the inability to do some things or understand some things in a certain way that if they're designed that way to actually look at what are we trying to help people do. Mm. I think it's a great point because it's also that that label, following on from your example, that that label of of how much you can see. A lot of mm. pushback you get from organisations is to do with, oh, those people aren't interested in our product because they can't see it. Yes, exactly. Mm. And and if you look at the purpose, then the purpose doesn't care as much mm. about whether they can see it or not because 
that that isn't the purpose. The purpose might, you know, they might have other needs. They have the same needs as another human. The fact that they, you know, they've got um, impaired vision or some issue, you know, disability issue, that that's not mm. that's not impacting their underlying purpose. Exactly. I mean, and just helping people realize that I think is one big uh, important uh, purpose as designers that we have our responsibility is to help people see these things that, that there are blind people who actually do love cars. There are blind people who do go to movies. There are blind people who do love color uh, because that is their interest. And, and I, I think you can knock down a lot of prejudice just by showing uh, these things that people have no idea is going on. Because, I mean, just up until a couple of years ago, I still had people react and think and actually question, so blind people use the internet? How's the, how does that work? Hmm. Which is fascinating to me that it's just, there's just this huge block chunk of knowledge that people don't have access to yet. But when you open that door and, and show people, then they can reframe their whole approach to everything we're building together. Hmm. Sounds a much better place. Yes. I have a recommended listening episode. Yeah, this was quite a difficult one to find recommended listening to. It's, there's, it's such a broad topic and, and you can go deep. Well, you could, really all, we could also just go random mm -hmm. and just say, listen, exactly, listen to yes. episode 143. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea what that episode is. But anyway, listen to it. Um, no, um, the one I've, I've pulled out from our Rome graph is um, episode 221. Um, decision systems with Kim Goodwin. Um, there we we also touch on um, oh, a few related issues to uh, issues um, to, to topics we touched on now with Indy, I think, or at least it's a good complement. Mm. Is that show? Mm. Um, and both Indy and Kim are people that we admire and respect greatly. Yeah, and take a, take time to reflect uh, and help us to understand things. And remember, you can contribute to funding the show by visiting uxpodcast.com slash support. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. my thesaurus you've lost your thesaurus yeah i don't have any words to describe how upset i am <laughs> medium level for, for that performance you're giving me medium level <laughs>